It is the 11 Dubcast. I'm Johnny. He's Chase Brown filling in for Andy. Thank you so much for being here tonight, Chase. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I know that there's probably a couple listeners that have already tuned me out and have probably turned off the Dubcast knowing that Andy's not coming. But you know what? That's first of all, don't sell yourself short. Second of all, a couple listeners is a little generous for this particular program. It's my mom, and she's very happy to hear your dulcet tone. So don't 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 talk yourself down like that. Oh, um, Johnny's you know mom. Yeah, thanks for being right. here. <laughs> Mrs. Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Ginter is very disappointed in, in how you talked about yourself. So here's the deal. All right, Ohio State comes out and and throttles Rutgers, and everybody's happy about it, and, and we're happy about it, and it's yay. But I got to tell you something, man. I these games. These early season games, I, I want to get super hyped about them. I want to get super excited. And and when the team is playing at a really high level, I'm like, all right, yes, this is, you know what? Yes, they're going to win. Yes, they're going to win and buy a lot of points. But I'm going to see some really cool stuff, and it's going to be entertaining to watch. That first half, dude, took almost two hours to play. <laughs> like, how many how many stoppages were there? There, there was one moment where it took, I, I think there were maybe like 90 seconds of game time that took almost like 15 minutes of real time to actually happen in my just- life. It was especially clear at the the point where Ohio State reached the red zone, pushed all the way down to the goal line. And I think Ryan Day and Greg Schiano shared timeouts consecutively. <laughs> yeah, that's maybe right. Maybe yeah. four or five times. That's that's when it really started to kick in that man, this first half has taken almost two hours. Yeah. And, and it, it really it, it felt almost a little bit surreal realizing how long it was taking to get through just this single possession it felt like work it felt like you know we we all showed up for work and we're just watching the clock and we're like come on man like i know you know like i know i'm getting paid to be here but i really would like the day to end and and so i think things accelerated a little bit in the second half and it, i think it got a little more entertaining fun to watch but um you know particularly with the the big rush from chop and we're going to talk about that in a second uh, but man, that that just happens sometimes where you've got these these games in the doldrums of September and October. We're just like, man, what what are we doing here? We gotta get a running clock or something. Here's the deal, though. I, I do want to focus on the positive. Mayan Williams going off for what 189 yards, something like that. Uh, looking really good as the marquee running back. You were hoping that Travion Henderson would go, but then. All of a sudden, right before the game, he's a he's a quote unquote game time decision. Looks like he's out. Hopefully, that won't be a very long term thing. But on the other hand, if you get a performance like that from Chop week in and week out, I think you're you're going to feel pretty good about the rushing game. I don't know. Did you expect? Would you have envisioned something like this from Mayan Williams even like a year ago? Not even close. Yeah, honestly, I think that Mayan Williams at best last year was maybe a guy that gives you five to 10 carries and gives you some modest production as a change of pace guy for, for Travion Henderson. And he's sort of even split that role with master Teague last season. Mm -hmm. Um, So to see him get his own backfield for most of the Rutgers game until Dallin Hayden and TC Caffey come in for maybe the last two drives. Um, it was special. It was special, really, to see Mayan Williams take over the game like that. And it uh, it's a testament to the work that he's put in. I think a lot of people came into the season maybe thinking that he was going to be the, the 
the change of pace guy again for Travion Henderson as, as Henderson was somebody with preseason all American expectations. And, and so far that backfield has kind of operated more as a, a one, a one B with Henderson and, and Williams more so than, you know, Henderson being the bell cow and, and Williams coming in when needed. It's it kind of operated in tandem. I mean, the dude, he's, he's sitting at 7.4 yards per carry right now, which is sick. The last two games, he's got, what, almost 300 yards rushing, uh, averaging over nine yards per carry, right, with the increased kind of workload. Um, I, I, I'm with you, man. I, I think, you know, even, even though I'm not the kind of guy who says that I like the the tandem running back, I don't like running back by platoon. That's never been mm-hmm. something that's really appealed to me just because I, I do think that running backs need kind of a rhythm to get into. The way Chop runs, how violent he is as a runner, um, how hard he is as a runner, I think that allows him to just kind of like shock defenses a little bit. They, I mean, again, not that, you know, these guys aren't used to hitting and, and tackling and all that kind of stuff, but I really think that he comes in and because his approach is different than Henderson's, it allows him to take some guys off guard a little bit. And I don't think they expect him to seek out contact like a lot of running backs you know, don't do. Because, I mean, if he sees a guy and he's like, well, I'm going to get hit anyway, he wants to do that first. He wants to take that right. hit. He wants, to, he wants to initiate contact rather than absorb it. And because of that, I think a lot of linebackers, a lot of safeties really don't know what to do with the dude sometimes. Um, because you don't have a chance to like wrap up or go for the, you know, go for the hip or whatever. So, you know, he had the huge big run, which again, I think a lot, that's another thing I don't think people would really expect from that guy. Um, but a great game from him. And, you know, I, with the guy who runs like that, I don't necessarily want him getting 20 carries a game. I, I think it would be great if Henderson can get healthy and they can, they can split that a little bit more because you're going to want to save that guy for, you know, later in November and then in December. But um, I don't know, man, that was just, that was a lot of fun to watch. And in a game that could be a little bit boring at times, that was, that was pretty sick. I liked that a lot. Um, The other thing I kind of want to talk about real quick is just the defense playing out. I mean, granted, we're not talking about murderers row here when it comes to Rutgers offense, but you know, a total of 187 yards allowed uh, the rushing game for Rutgers essentially non-existent. Uh, their passing game essentially non-existent. I mean, that was top to bottom. I think one of, if not the best defensive por- uh, performance that they've put in this season. Yeah, I would agree. And Dan Hope wrote about this after the game. Man, like what? What is happening in the Ohio State linebacker room? Oh my With God, Tommy Eichenberg and Steel Chambers. I mean, Dan wrote about this at length, just talking about how last season. That was, without a doubt, the weakest link in the defense. That overall, that defense wasn't very good anyway. So it, right. you're looking at that unit, and you're like, how can this be fixed? And Jim Knowles comes in in year one, and it looks like Tommy Eichenberg and Steel Chambers are <laughs> have just completely transformed themselves in a way that nobody could have expected. Um, they both play with such a ferocity and an aggressiveness that they're just diagnosing plays so quickly. And they're able to to cover such a, a big range on the field from sideline to sideline that I think they've really been causing some problems for opposing offenses. Um, and for for Jim Knowles to talk so much and Ryan Day to talk so much about this defense being safety driven, I don't know, man. I think that this defense is linebacker driven. Uh, maybe that's not its yeah. design, but that's kind of how it's been through the first five games. And, and I've been impressed, wholly impressed with 
Eichenberg and Chambers in their performances so far. Yeah, I mean, it's this is another maybe set of guys who where you're looking at it and you're going, okay, a year ago we wouldn't be saying any of this stuff. Like it is, it, it, like Tommy Eichenberg didn't really emerge until you know really the very very end of the season, and and you're like, okay, well that's great. You know, he, he looks great in the Rose Bowl and has like 17 tackles or whatever the hell it was. But maybe that's a fluke. Maybe that's just a random thing. There's no way that he's really, you know, the 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 dude. And then he comes out and he's just not only is he incredible on the field, but he has, I guess, I honestly from the quotes that you get from some of these guys saying, like, you know, if you're walking down a dark alley, you got Tommy Eichenberg, then you're safe. <laughs> like hearing that kind of stuff, you're like, oh my God, this guy is legit. And I don't know, Steel Chambers, a converted running back. It just seems it seems like really great coaching. That's I, to me, that's really what it comes down to. And it's again, not to, to, you know, poo poo their actual athletic abilities or anything like that, but man, what a difference a scheme and a coach can make. And, and keep in mind, I mean, it's easy to forget sometimes when we talk about Knowles as defensive coordinator guys really concentrating on the linebackers too. So given that coaching, maybe it's not super surprising that this has happened, but, I agree with you, man, for them to make that kind of turnaround so quickly to go from a part of the defense that was considered to be a weakness to a pretty clear strength uh, with guys that were not heralded, I think, in, in really any real way a year ago is, is pretty remarkable. Um, and the amount of uh, the amount of tackles that they're racking up to is something right. that blows my mind. Uh, just the the level of production. I mean, Steel Chambers had, you know, 11 total tackles, two tackles for loss. Uh, Tommy Eichenberg added another half tackle for loss. It just it, it is just constant every single game. And of course, Chambers had the interception. Um, yeah, it's wild to see. And that's another thing that I think maybe takes some some other teams off guard uh, when they're like, oh, okay, well we get past the defensive line, maybe we can pick up some yards. And that's just not happening. Right. Um, so that's a lot of fun to watch too. I enjoy that. It, it's um, looked like to me, and I'm putting this in my school session for Tuesday. I don't know when people will be listening to the Dubcast, but go ahead and look at that segment of the school session if you hear this in time. But I'm watching a clip on repeat. Uh, Dane Brugler, he's an NFL analyst for The Athletic, mm-hmm. and I have this tweet pulled up on my browser right now as we're, we're talking. And Steel Chambers had a play where he ran from – about the block O at the 50-yard line all the way to the Rutgers sideline to make a tackle. And something that's impressing me the most about this play, I know you can't see it, but if Steel Chambers doesn't make this tackle, Mike Hall is the next guy to him. If Mike Hall doesn't make that tackle, Josh Proctor is the next guy to him. If Josh Proctor doesn't make the tackle, it's Ronnie Hickman. And you you kind of see what Knowles was talking about earlier this year in the spring when he confused a lot of people saying that he hopes his defense misses tackles. A lot of people were like, what, is, what does he mean by that? Is he a defensive coordinator that wants his players to just whiff on making tackles? <laughs> but the whole idea yeah. is yes, that much. Is. It's, it's, it's literally <laughs> that if one guy misses a tackle, it's okay because there's going to be five, six, or seven hats in the frame to make that tackle if he misses. And, right. and I've seen that a lot this season. This play is an example that Ohio State just has a way of diagnosing plays so quickly this year. And the reactionary speed, the bursts that some of these guys are having as soon as they see a run is coming or a quarterback has escaped the pocket, you know, they they are really making it known that this defense is a lot different than what you saw a year ago, two years ago, or any time in the past. Yeah, and I, and I 
you know, it is a lot of fun to watch. That's the other thing. I mean, from a fan perspective, you're seeing this. It, it, it isn't it isn't going to be you're you're constantly taking your hair out, just hoping that they don't, you know, that they suck just slightly less than necessary to, you know, to lose a game. Like, can they keep you in the game? Now it's actually can they win a game for you? Right. Um, and I, I really like that. That's that's pretty sweet. Let me ask you this, though. C.J. Stroud, all right, comes out, does not have his greatest game or even anything close to that. Uh, he's, you know, been a little bit sloppier, I think, the past couple games with the ball, not as high completion percentage. And this in this game against, you know, Rutgers, he didn't even get to 60% of his passes. And this guy is, like, hyper accurate most of the time. He was airmailing some of them. Mm. Um, are you a little concerned about the dude? I wouldn't say I'm any bit concerned. However, I... I do think I was texting with one of my buddies after the game and he actually had a positive outlook on it um, in saying that that was CJ Stroud at his worst. Mm. Um, and that, you know, you've seen that now you've seen how CJ Stroud has performed maybe at his worst. Let's knock on wood and say that nothing worse actually happens later down the road. Sure. But you see now that CJ Stroud is human and now you get to see how he responds because there really wasn't that opportunity for him last year. If you'll remember the Tulsa game, he didn't really play that well, but it came out later that he had a shoulder injury, and then he sat out for the Akron game. He comes back, he plays against Rutgers, performs really well, and then the rest of the season goes as we know. He you know, ends up finishing fourth for the Heisman and enters this season as a Heisman favorite. I think now you're going to get to see, okay, how does C.J. Stroud respond when there needs to be a little bit of resiliency? When he didn't perform at his highest level, he's going to go and go up against the Michigan State defense that is putrid in his defensive backfield. Can he respond and light them up? Um, I think that he will. Uh, I would say, though, I wasn't necessarily impressed with C.J. Stroud. I don't think really many people were last weekend. Um, but I do think I'm looking forward to seeing how can C.J. Stroud answer now that people have maybe seen defensive coordinators have seen that there's maybe a couple of chinks in the armor that he needs to, you know, get out of his system as this season progresses. Right. And, and as you mentioned, uh, he's going to have a chance to do that against a pretty opportune opponent uh, coming up here. So we'll get into that in a second. Uh, last thing I want to talk about with the Rutgers game, obviously towards the end of the game, you've got the, uh, the fake punt that was not called. And I really, my favorite part about all of this is not necessarily the day Shiano confrontation, because that's, that to me is very expected. And that's, that's the, you know, traditional angry football coach, you know, how dare you, how dare you kind of thing. That's not really, that to me isn't as interesting. What's funny to me is uh, Ryan day. I don't know if this is the right term for it, but kind of throwing Jesse Mirko under the bus a little mm -hmm. bit <laughs> and saying, no, we didn't practice that. And he saw it and he, you know, he's an older guy and he's seen uh, Aussie rules football and he just took it. He just did it. And that's not something that I endorsed. He just went ahead and did it himself and that's fine. And then we'll have a conversation about it. Right. Um, I don't know. I, I, I kind of actually think that's probably reality. I think that's actually what happened. Um, but it's funny to me that Ryan day was so blunt about that. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe just, to, I don't know, maybe to turn down the heat a little bit, but, uh, you know what? Props to Mirko for doing that because they sent, they went all out on the block. It wasn't just, right. okay, we've conceded, we're done. It was an all out attempt to try to block the punt and maybe go after Mirko a little bit. And he said, no, screw you guys. I see what we're going to do. I'm going to sidestep and run for the first down. I have no problem with him doing that in that situation at all. 
And it's funny to me that, you know, it, it kind of devolved into that kind of situation. But uh, no, I, you know, some people are like, oh, sportsmanship. Like, I don't care. You're going to go out, try to block a, or block a punt. Then the punter is going to be aware enough and smart enough to make into a first down. And I have no, that's fine. doesn't matter when that happens or what the score is. Right. I don't think that you can discredit Marco's effort on that play. I don't necessarily know how much the the Australian background, the Aussie football background puts and at what kind of effect that has on Mirko's decision making there. Makes I think that honestly card. you just yeah, <laughs> right. It's just like, oh, he's Australian. Maybe that like that's different <laughs> overseas. But no, it's like you, you know what all my football. all my knowledge of Australia comes from Crocodile Dundee <laughs> and like the uh Simpsons episode where they go to Australia. So I by those standards, yes, that's that's exactly why he did it. Right. Uh, but I don't really know what it was going through his mind. Right. <laughs> I, I just think, you know, you're a punter, you're a football player. You catch the ball. Rutgers, as you said, goes all out for the punt block. Yeah. And as he's shifting to his right, he sees that there's nobody there to stop him. And nobody told him he shouldn't. You know, right. it's not it's not that they told him that he should. It's it's that they didn't say that he shouldn't. Right. Um, exactly. Not to cross my words there, but just like to say that, yes, he caught the ball, looked up, saw that nobody was in front of him, and he ran for it. And I think you're exactly right in pointing out that Rutgers went all out to to block the punt. I compared it earlier today as I was commenting with some people on my school session that it, it kind of felt like when a basketball team is down by a bunch and they're still full court pressing. Right. You can't expect the opposing team that's up on offense to just fall apart and turn the ball over on that side of the court. Right. Or if they beat the press to not take the layup, that's wide open. You know, yeah. it's, it's the fact that Rutgers was still going a hundred percent as they should. It's the football game. They're not going to lay over and die. It's the big 10. Uh, it's the fact that Ohio state and Jesse Murko saw that and that Murko took advantage of it. And I don't really see that it was that big of a deal, but you know, you have people on Twitter that only see Ohio state's up 39 points and they ran a fake punt without listening to how Joshua Perry, who's doing color commentary, explains it all and yep. saying that Rutgers is sending all their guys to block this punt. They just see high state up 39, fake punt on Rutgers. You know, way, way to give it to the Scarlet Knights. You know, Way to give it to them. You really showed them. But that's just not what happened. And I think that that's kind right. of – it's been overblown quite a bit. But it was entertaining, to say the least. It was extremely entertaining. And that's – you know what? That's the other thing. I'm sorry. If you don't want entertaining, embarrassing things to happen to you, then be a better football team. Like, that's that's just – I'm not usually that, I guess, mercenary when it comes to the outcomes of this stuff. But, like, I don't know. I, I watched this game, and I'm thinking if – you know, it's, it's a free-for-all at that point. If you want to do something cool, then you should be able to go ahead and do it without somebody complaining about it and whining about it. And You know, again, a after the game, you know, they kind of played nice and said, oh, we're still buddies, and it's right. fine. Which is fine, which is great. I mean, good for them. I'm glad I'm glad it wasn't some lasting, you know, hateful thing. But I don't know. If you're going to have a game where it's the end of the game, you're still going to be playing 100%, then everybody gets to play that way. Uh, the last thing I'll say about that, though, and this is probably, I think, um, I was thinking actually back to uh, Jim Trestle, and Jim Trestle obviously was not known for blowing teams out. However, mm -hmm. however, comma, as, as my uh, co-host would say, um, his vendetta against Northwestern was particularly <laughs> hilarious because if you look, if you look at his average margins of victory against pretty much every other team in the big 10, it's like, okay, you know, 10, 15, 20 point, whatever. 
against Northwestern. They lost to Northwestern, I believe, in like 2004 uh, or 2005. One of those years. I can't remember exactly which. It was probably it was 2004, I think. Uh, they lost to Northwestern. And uh, after that, every time that Jim Trestle played them, they I think they won by like 45 points or something stupid like that. Anyway, uh, ESPN Stats and Info put out a tweet um, after the game where it said that Ohio State has scored 49 plus points in nine straight games against Rutgers. That is the longest streak by any team versus any opponent, any single opponent since 1936. So... I feel like destroying Rutgers and embarrassing them is now just tradition. It, it's something that actually has to happen because if it doesn't, then, you know, it, it's, it's removing something really critical and, and wonderful about Ohio state football. So I appreciate uh, rubbing it in because that's, that's apparently just what Ohio state does. A um, couple other things going on nationally. I, you know, I get a little, upset and a little sad when it looks like there's going to be huge shakeups at the top of college football. And then later in the game, you're like, okay, it's really tight. And then it kind of regresses back to the mean and it's not as fun. However, I will say that there were a couple of things last weekend that kind of tickled me and, and made me happy. I, I love it when the Aggies get skunked as they did against uh, Mississippi state. I think it's hilarious that Jimbo Fisher had his contract renegotiated, gave him even more money and had even less results. Um, Georgia escaped Missouri. That, that was not a game. I mean, look, they look bad and they looked like they deserved to lose that game. And I knew they weren't because the universe isn't that cool. Um, Oklahoma getting (laughs) completely blown out by TCU. What? Okay. So of all these games, all these things that are going around uh, college football, last weekend what was the one that you kind of honed in on what was the one that you thought was most interesting um honestly a a couple of different things stood out to me i think namely um the texas a&m man it's just so funny it's Um, hilarious it's so funny bad it wasn't like oh okay well maybe they just don't know what they're doing i mean that's old mike leach coming out there (laughs) beating jimbo like also, did you see this is an incredible tangent, but did you see the interview that Mike Leach had with the reporter after the game? I did not. So this reporter comes up to Mike Leach after the game, does not ask anywhere remotely close to a football-related question. <laughs> right. um, in typical Mike Leach, fa- Mike Leach fashion, he answers it beautifully. The reporter asks, I'm planning a wedding. What would be your advice for planning the wedding. Apparently he's a big fan of them. And he gives her two minutes of an answer. Oh my God. Explaining about how this, this reporter and her soon to be husband should just skip the whole wedding planning process (laughs) that they should just get after the football season. They should just get eloped and call it a day. And he has an agreement. Mike Leach has an agreement with his kids that if they just get eloped he'll give them ten thousand (laughs) dollars he said skip all the hassle don't involve me in any of it get eloped i'll give you a ten thousand dollar check to start your lives and it is amazing and then you look at the difference between i don't know the reporter that asked nick saban the question after the alabama arkansas game but she asks how did your team respond without bryce young Oh, right. That game with a a shoulder injury. And he's all like, talk about the team and talk about how good they were. And the reporter literally asked about the team. Right. And you just see the two different personalities that exist. It's so funny that they both coach in the SEC. Um, You just see Mike Leach 
give this long, illustrious answer about planning a wedding, and then you have Nick Saban just upset for apparently no reason, um, just because he wants to be upset. But I guess that's just how the way his his brain works. Right. Well, and you know the thing about Mike Leach is that I'm sure, like, some part of him, I'm sure a very large part of him actually was relieved when he got a question like that. He was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> Finally, someone asked me about my wedding. <laughs> I can't believe nobody has asked me about this yet. I know exactly. And so that, yeah, so they blow out Jimbo, which is great. And I enjoy that again, quite a bit. Um, you've got Oklahoma just getting annihilated. And and look, I don't, I am endlessly fascinated by the decisions that go into deciding who the next great head coach will be from the coordinator ranks. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like there's always a guy, there's always a dude where they're just salivating over the chance to make a head coach who's a coordinator. And it seems to me, I mean, you know, Ohio state accepted, but it seems to me that most of the time here, it doesn't always work out the way that teams think it's going to work out. And and we'll talk about that actually as well, a little bit later on in the show, but um I don't know, man. Is is Venables just not the dude? Like, is that is that the problem that's going on? It definitely could be because the the cabinets, the cupboards, they weren't left empty when no. Lincoln Riley left for USC. You know that he took Caleb Williams with him, but it's not like he took the entire roster and picked it up from Oklahoma and brought it all the way with him to Los Angeles. Um, there's definitely a lot of talent still left on that roster, and I don't know. I think that. These things can sometimes take time, but in a day and age where a person like Mel Tucker, who I know we'll talk about extensively with the Spartans, comes mm-hmm. in in his first season with Michigan State and, and goes 11-2 and two and shocks the world with the transfer portal, I think a lot of people just maybe have unrealistic expectations for how teams can succeed really early. Right. But then again, it's Oklahoma. It's It's one of the blue bloods of college football. I don't think that people would be very pleased if, Ryan Day started his coaching tenure with two losses very early in the season. So you kind of have to weigh that as well as, as thinking about Oklahoma as one of the premier programs in college football. And right. now they're staring down the barrel of, you know, maybe a nine win season. If all things go according to plan the rest of the way, maybe eight wins. I mean, they still have a couple of difficult games left on their schedule. So I'm not going to be, you know, saying that they're going to turn this thing around and, contend for a big 12 championship anytime soon they got some some tough competition left they do and you know what they they gotta they gotta play kansas ranked kansas go jayhawks that's right that's right you got texas coming up next week they gotta play oklahoma state um i think what's shocking about that for oklahoma fans is not necessarily the losses per se um, but maybe how they've lost the last couple games because you know Mm -hmm. venable he was you know this defensive mastermind you know the guy who are you know the architect essentially of these amazing defenses at clemson and they've given up close to 100 points in the past two games um that's absurd for you know an oklahoma team in any year but especially when you have a guy with those kind of bona fides um at defense so that would be i mean that'd be like a ryan day team coming in and then okay well they score 10 points one game and then seven points the next you're like okay what the hell is going on here Right. So I can understand why people be freaking out a little bit. And I don't know. I mean, yes, they'll still have all the resources that they need and, and they're still a big brand and everything like that. And I don't think they're going to regress to something like Nebraska, but sure. um, they've got a lot of transition coming up 
right with with their situation who they'll be competing against for not just games but recruits um i i don't know it, it's going to be a really interesting transition for both them and texas uh when they move in and and try to figure out like how you know how to how to basically jostle for elbow room right mm. with their new kind of compatriots and um I don't know. It, it may be more difficult than they think. Although with Texas, I think at this point they're probably pretty well beat down and, and understand that it's nothing will come easy <laughs> for what they're attempting to do, regardless. So, right. um, but yeah, so that'll be interesting, and and we'll you know obviously keep an eye on what else is going on in the rest of the national uh, football scene. Uh, real quick, we want to remind you that the 11 Dubcast is sponsored by the Dry Goods Store at 11warriors.com. Drygoods.11warriors.com. Shirts, hats, stickers, all kinds of great stuff. It's getting cold out there. I recommend maybe getting a hat or some kind of long-sleeved shirt of some kind. There's a lot of great stuff. Hoodies, all kinds of cool things. Check it out. I wear 11warriors.com merchandise. Chase, do you wear any? I wear them quite. Oh my gosh. Then you should too. And they're great. And they're, uh, by the way, I'll I'll say this. There's another thing Uh, looking at some of the prices at some of these other uh, college sports premium sites, a little bit higher than the dry goods store. That's all I'm saying. Just check it out. It's pretty great. Let's do our favorite portion of the show. It's ask us anything. And as a reminder, you can ask us literally anything by sending us a question to dubcast at 11 warriors.com. And I got to tell you something, this, you know, I really do love Ask Us Anything, um, but I think one of the reasons why I love it so much is just like the off the wall questions, the things that I just don't expect. You know what I mean? Um, so please keep sending in the weirdest stuff that you possibly can. Let's start here with our good friend Alvin, who wants to know in that vein, what is your go to karaoke song? Oh, gosh. Can I confess that I haven't sung karaoke before? That's okay. If That's I have, right. what, so it, hypothetically, I don't. Do you do you feel that you have a good singing voice? Are you? Uh, a, okay, I'm gonna admit some pretty embarrassing childhood things about okay. me. Well, um, that's what "Ask Us Anything" is for. I did a couple of talent shows growing up. Not you know, go out to the the world and try and get a professional contract talent shows, but just my local elementary school talent shows. All right. Um, let me tell you a song. Beautiful ballad from a man named Ayaz. What? A song called Replay. Okay. Have you heard it? I don't think so. I'm not going to give you a rendition. Okay. But if anybody's listening to the Dubcast and you know what I'm talking about, then you know how much of a banger this song is. All right. They got the iPod stuck on replay. That's all I'm going to say. Oh um, and also a couple of Bruno Mars songs. Uh, okay. 24 Garrett. That's a great song, the, the oh, magic. Excellent. Um, it's it's good. I think a couple of Bruno Mars songs might be my answer to that as well. Okay. Well, so I feel like, I mean, how old are you, Chase? Twenty-two. Okay. So time hasn't destroyed your vocal cords. You you, you still are in the prime <laughs> of your existence. I spent, you know, I'm I'm what I'm thirty-seven years old. I I spent many many years in front of a classroom screaming at children at the top of my lungs continue to talk at very loud tones right <laughs> uh for most of my career and uh at this point i just sound like i don't know like a diseased donkey who's just like you know screaming at, at <laughs> like, various animals that go in front of him um i you know here's the deal because of that 
and I, I will say in all seriousness, I actually, when I was a kid, I was a pretty good singer before my voice changed. I could sight read music. Uh, my family is pretty musical. Like my sister, uh, is an okay singer. She's a pretty good singer. Um, she also plays the piano and the organ. My dad, you know, is an excellent singer. My mom's actually a really good singer. Uh, I, I was an okay singer until my voice changed. And then it, I started sounding like this. And as one, as one commenter actually on the 11 dub cast, so lovingly put it, uh, I sound like a surfer dude who did a bunch of bass salts. Um, and so that's, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like that's fairly accurate. But anyway, if we're talking about karaoke songs for a guy who sounds like a surfer dude, who does a bunch of bass salts, which I don't, um, uh, it's probably something like the devil went down to Georgia where I can do, I can just kind of like sing, talk my way through something and not actually have to sing. Right. Um, you know, kind of, kind of where you just get a gravelly Southern voice and you just do whatever. Um, but that's, that's really it. It's gotta be the devil went down to Georgia. I actually, so I lived in Japan, did a lot of karaoke and, uh, that does not, believe it or not, Chase, that does not bring the house down. <laughs> <laughs> in, in Miyakonojo, Japan, it, it is apparently not a uh, a big favorite of the locals. So I was uh, sadly uh, mistaken in thinking that would would get the the crowd pumping. Um, okay, this is from uh, Nate from Perrysburg. Who? Uh, okay, so he says, "Love the podcast. Been listening for years." There was, however, something I wanted to correct from the uh, previous episode. The 1916 uniforms uh, that we did not like, which had the cannonball helmet, was not a reference to that helmet uh, the team wore, a.k.a. a leather helmet. It was a reference to something a writer said about the style of play of Chick Harley. Uh, James Thurber wrote, James Thurber, incredible, you know, writer, Secret Life of Walter Mitty, among other things. Uh, if you never saw him run with the football, we can't describe it to you. It wasn't like Red Grange or Tom Harmon or anyone else. It was kind of a cross between music and cannon fire, and it brought your heart up under your ears. Wow. God, James Serb is such a good writer. Um, these are one of my favorite alternate uniforms because it recognizes a player forgotten by most Ohio State fans, even though he was more critical to the program's success than perhaps any other player. I recommend the Chick, uh, book Chick by Bob Hunter, uh, which is a biography on Chick Harley. By the way, real quick. So I understand, I understand all of these points. These are all very good points. That is not the uniform I was referring to. Um, I actually do like the cannonball helmet and, and the old Chick Harley um, uh, uniforms and all that. I thought that was great. The one mm. I was dunking on was the one that I don't think people remember, but it was with the giant red stripe in the middle. You know what I'm talking about? Was this the, the jerseys that Braxton Miller wore? I think so. Yes. The Wisconsin game. Yes. Yeah. Those were booty. And and the one and and while I appreciate this very impassioned defense of uh the legacy of Chick Harley, which again, very necessary because Chick Harley was fantastic. Uh those look dumb. And and the actual the actual helmet uniforms that they're based off of them are hilarious because it's just this giant foam padding on top and it looks goofy as hell. Um, but I do like the the cannonball ones that they had. I thought that was pretty cool. The mat, I'm always a big mm -hmm. fan of that. So his question is, since we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of Ohio Stadium, what is the most important game ever played there? That's a great question. Um, I, I actually have known and studied on two games that Ohio State has played that okay. people would have considered the game of the century. Um, I think that people are well familiar with the Ohio State-Michigan game in 2006. Mm -hmm. Ohio State, Troy Smith, 42-39, Buckeyes win. 
the other game of the century that I, for some reason, find a lot more interesting is the 1935 game between Ohio State and Notre Dame. Um, in, in my research of this game, I found a few things to be pretty interesting, a few things that caught my eye. Um, at one point before the game, they had as many as 300,000 people waiting to get into the horseshoe to watch Ohio State play Notre Dame. And at the time, Ohio Stadium only had about 80,000 seats. So they had to turn away, at minimum, uh, 220,000 people, so they say. Uh, Additionally, to that point, uh, there were fake tickets that were being sold to fans. (laughs) Fantastic. That were also turned away. This actually became an FBI investigation that over 2,000 tickets, I believe, were created in Philadelphia and brought over to Columbus that fans were um, were sort of baited into purchasing, thinking that they were going to be able to get in and watch this game. Um, and if I were to explain all of the crazy events that take place once the, the boot hits the ball and the game actually starts, I wouldn't have enough time to talk about it in a singular podcast, let alone to the, answer this question. But if you have a time, if you have any time, Go and look up what happened during the 1935 Ohio State-Notre Dame game in Ohio Stadium. It is crazy. Things like interceptions in the end zone, things like drop touchdowns in the end zone that all could have helped Ohio State win the game or Notre Dame win the game. Things back and forth, all of it, just insane. Um, So I'd recommend that game and probably say that that one is one of the best games ever played there and could be the the best game ever in Ohio Stadium. I think that's legit. That is, I, I really appreciate uh, the blast from the past because I think a lot of people maybe, you know, especially for the Woody Hayes era, a lot of people may not have a lot of information or know too much about, you know, what Ohio State football looked like at that time. Um, I was at the 1v2 game in 2006, and I think part of that is diminished a little bit because of what happened afterwards. And it's not just that Ohio State got skunked, right, in the national championship game. I mean, Michigan went out and looked like crap, too, in their bowl game, I believe. Um, right after that. So that I think diminishes a little bit. However, Bo Schembechler dying uh, that week, just, you know, previous to the game that, you know, I think created an atmosphere around the, around the game that um, lent it a lot more drama than maybe right. it would have had otherwise. I mean, again, it's, it's obviously already a huge insane game because there's no big 10 championship. And that was essentially going to decide, you know, that was a de facto semi-final game for the national championship um so that already was insane and the atmosphere around the game was just ridiculous i remember i, I saw a dead Schimbechner's <laughs> uh concert which i think they actually renamed their band that week uh um but it was it uh, that was pretty wild they had that at the newport i went there and that was that was sick and i i just took in the whole atmosphere before the game and it was just like pretty much unlike any other game that I had attended at Ohio Stadium. Um, and it was, of course, a great game itself. And, you know, Ohio State wins and you rush the field and everything. But I think if we're talking about historically in games at Ohio Stadium that have kind of defined what most people think of when they think of Ohio State, right? Like on a national level, not just among right. fans. Uh, I got to believe that the uh, the 1968 version of the game and at Ohio Stadium uh, where it was, you know, Ohio State coming in undefeated. I think they were ranked number two or number one in the country at the time. They're playing uh, number four Michigan, and they just 
destroy Michigan, right? That was the, you know, that was like because we couldn't go for three. Like they, that was where, right. like, I think it established so much of the Ohio State Michigan lore. It, it kind of presaged all of what was going to happen in the 1960 or 1970s with like the 10 year war. Um, to me, that game, 1968, especially because Ohio State goes on and, you know, they're the national champions and everything. They go on and beat USC in the Rose Bowl. Um, I think that established a lot of what people think of when they think of Ohio State. And because it was Ohio State, Michigan, you know, this giant blowout win and infuriated everybody in, in Ann Arbor, that to me, I think probably is maybe the most significant game uh, for, his, for Ohio State culture, I guess. Um, that's been played in Ohio Stadium. So, yeah, that's that's a that's a fun one. And there's a, I mean, there's so many to choose from, and there's a lot uh, that you can say or you could claim. But I really appreciate that question because a hundred years is a long freaking time. It is. It <laughs> there's, is. There's a lot. There's a lot that can uh, that can go on um, uh, in in that time. And, and Ohio State's been lucky enough to have a lot of really great moments. By the way, let me ask you this. So, you know, twenty years old. What what is your personal favorite game that you've been able to like see and experience um i would probably say the 2017 game ohio state beat penn state okay that was when ohio state wore those all gray jerseys the all gray and yes black numbers and jt uh, barrett has like the single greatest and, quarter any quarterbacks ever had oh my gosh jt barrett made ohio stadium explode yeah. Um, I've never been in an atmosphere quite like that to where it was so loud. I couldn't even hear my, I believe it was my mom who was sitting next to me. I couldn't even hear her as she was saying some of the things to me on just a regular play. You know, it wasn't that Ohio state had just scored a touchdown or it wasn't that Ohio state had just intercepted a pass or fill in the blank for whatever exciting football play. It was just a regular second down and 10 for Penn state and people were losing their minds. <laughs> and, and that sort of environment is something that I'll remember for the rest of my life. Just that combined with how well JT Barrett played in that second half and how Ohio state's defense came together to stop Saquon Barkley and Trace McSorley um, and Chris Godwin. Forget about Chris Godwin a lot when you think about yeah. that Penn state team, but three amazing college football players too. Now Barkley and Godwin have been great NFL players. Um, man, you just think about that team and Penn State, think about Ohio State being able to beat them at home, come back. Great game. I'll always remember it. Awesome. Yeah, I that you know, I that was one of those games that I really wish I could have been there in person. I've been I've been in some pretty classic games, honestly. And then you know, the one V two games probably the the biggest of all of those, but that was definitely one where I was envious of everybody in the stadium. Um, let's shift a little bit. So let's go ahead. I, I'm going to, I'm going to change things up a little bit. Let's talk before we get into some Sparty talk and, and preview Michigan state real briefly. Um, first of all, Michigan, you know, you can read threat level. Obviously it's, it's not in depth. It's mostly just stupid jokes. However, I do think it's important that people pay attention to what's going on with that team up North because they, they might be still pretty good. And again, schedule's not doing them any favors and actually proving that. And, and they just played, you know, obviously a team with a horrendous offense in Iowa. But right. uh, I think people should keep an eye on what they're what they've got cooking up there 
um, especially with JJ McCarthy at the helm. I, I they're not letting him cook, which is ridiculous. They're they're kind of just kind of saying, all right, well now you do what Cade was supposed to do. Um, but he is a really, you know, I think a, a much higher level of athlete than McNamara was. So um, it'll be interesting to see what they're capable of doing against the likes of Penn State in a couple of weeks. So just keep an eye on those guys. Before we get to Michigan State, Paul Chris got fired. That's funny. <laughs> by the way, I you know the, I think a lot of people were baffled by this, and they're like, I can't. I mean, what this dude? It's the middle of the season. He's got a record of success. They they are great in bowls. You know, they've they have competed for the Big Ten crown. Why now? Why pull the trigger? I honestly think that that the more I think about it, that's a good move for them. Is it not like they've got they got Leonard sitting in the wings? They're gonna lose that dude if you know they don't act. I feel like they kind of had to do what they did. Yeah, I absolutely agree, and I think that I was honestly surprised that Wisconsin had the guts to do it. Yeah, um, I just heard recently, just having a discussion with a couple of friends of mine about Wisconsin. You know, as regular people do from Columbus, <laughs> Ohio. Yeah, that's right. But just talking about this was after Ohio State beat them two weekends ago, um, how Wisconsin has, has just not really evolved with the ever-changing game of college football. And mm-hmm. it seems like their athletic department was fine with Wisconsin not really being anything of a national championship contender. It seemed like their athletic department was a little bit content with just being a team that competes with Ohio State in the Big Ten championship. and maybe get to go to a Rose Bowl every once in a while and and see how it goes from there. And I just don't think that's it, – it, it's Wisconsin's turn to take the West every single year. Um, I don't right. know if turn's the right word, but, you know, just talking about how the Badgers, Wisconsin, have given Ohio State a couple of really good games in the past. Um, I think most recently that 2019 Big Ten Championship when they were up going into halftime. Um, and all they needed to do was keep control of that game in the second half, and they could have knocked off at the point that number one ranked Ohio State team. You know, Wisconsin has the ability to be a good football program, and it just seemed like they never were really, you know, pushing the ceiling. It seemed like they were okay with just being a team that won the Big Ten championship or the Big Ten West and competed for a Big Ten championship, and and that was it. There was never really anything more. And so I hope that Jim Leonard, maybe in the interim role, maybe becomes head coach pushes them to, to want more, pushes them to be a team that, you know, gives it their all every single season to try and go win a natty. Right. You just, you don't want to turn in, you don't want to be Nebraska. You don't want to give up something. You don't want to give up nine wins and then go to two or three. Uh, However, I will say that I think what really caused them to pull the trigger, particularly last week, it wasn't just losing to Brett Bielma, right? That's, you know, having him come back and bite you in your ass. That's kind of embarrassing. Yeah. But their identity, I mean, look, Wisconsin, it's really funny because Wisconsin football and basketball are centered around a very specific identity, right? Like, you know exactly what you're getting when you're playing that. And if they lose that identity, if they don't have that anymore, then I don't think they have much of anything. Um, so if you can't run the ball as Wisconsin, right, if you're going out there and your offensive line's getting bullied and your running backs aren't getting yards at all, then that to me, I think that's something unique for that program where it's like, well, then you've taken everything from us, right? They net yards, like this is including, you know, Graham Mertz, you know, being terrible and getting sacked and everything, but like combined yardage here on the ground, 
24 carries, two rushing yards. That is that is one plus one is what they had against Illinois. Like that's that's to me a crisis for Wisconsin. That is an absolute personality like mental crisis. That that that's like breakdown time stuff where they I don't think they would be able to really like handle that emotionally as a program. And so when you see something like that, I, I think that you just have to you have to make some kind of decision. You have to make some kind of change. And it sucks because I think Paul Chris is a good dude. And um I don't think he's a terrible coach, but clearly lost the plot. And they don't have, you know, they have a complete personality crisis right now. And they've got to figure out who they are as a program and how to win some football games. And if that involves throwing the ball 50 times, whatever, fine. Um, but I think that really was the the last straw because you can't, man, against Illinois, you can't you can't rush for two yards. Yeah, <laughs> not as Wisconsin. You, you just you just can't do that. Um, all right, real quick, let's let's finish this up here with some Sparty talk. I you know a lot will probably be made of the fact that Michigan State's secondary is just absolute trash, and you know Ohio State is probably expected to throw for 500 yards against these guys, which I hope they do, and I think that would be great, and you know that would be how I kind of expect this game to unfold. Um, I'm just fascinated by how, you know, you go again, how long is a year? That's basically what we talked about <laughs> at the beginning of this, right? Like there are certain things that we think are real things that we can rely on as college football fans. Like, okay, that makes sense. And I can, I can compartmentalize that and then put it in my back pocket and then it won't change for a little bit, but that's not the case here with Michigan state. I mean, Michigan state throws tens of millions of dollars, almost hundred million dollars at, you know, Mel Tucker. And in response, they, they don't know how to fix, you know, a defensive issue. That's, that's glaring at this point, they lose a running back and go, okay, well, I don't have a solution for that. And now their quarterback who was pretty solid is just completely up and down all over the place. Where are they as a program? I mean, we'll talk, we'll give our score prediction here, but like, I don't know. What's the line right now? Like 30, something like that? Something stupid? Yeah, it um, is. Is that what it is? I believe, yeah, 29 and a half. Good Lord. So we're at that point with Michigan State, man. Like, I don't know if any – it is It is kind of remarkable in one sense to put in perspective what Ohio State's been able to do so consistently. Um, but, man, is, is Michigan State just like snake bit at this point? I mean, or is Mel Tucker going to be able to turn this thing around for these guys? Maybe eventually. I think maybe what we had with Mel Tucker is a little bit of fool's gold. Actually, I don't even think yeah. that's maybe. That is is how it was. Um, he performed so well on the in the transfer portal last year by bringing in a bunch of guys that just worked. Um, we talk about Kenneth Walker. Uh, you know, he ends up winning the Doak Walker Award for the best mm-hmm. running back in the country. Um, and you hit with that guy in the transfer portal, but what happens when you don't hit with those guys? And that's what's happening right now is that Michigan state didn't have the infrastructure in place. Similarly to how we talked about Oklahoma earlier in, in the podcast and saying that, you know, when Lincoln Riley left for USC, he didn't take everybody with him. Um, when Tom, or excuse me, I almost called him Tom Izzo. When Mark D'Antonio <laughs> was asked to kindly leave Michigan State, it, the cupboard wasn't even there. You know, there wasn't anything desirable right. 
um, for Mel Tucker to come in and use as pieces to build a program together. And and I think that when he hit on the transfer portal pieces last year, it's a little bit of fool's gold because those guys are, most of those guys are now gone. The most important piece and Kenneth Walker's gone and he tried to do it again, still not having the, the build up the infrastructure in place from recruiting in years past that now that, you know, he's just left in a place where there's nothing. Um, so I won't I won't necessarily sound the alarm on him yet, but I do think it is a, it's really funny that they handed him that money so quickly, and and now it's kind of coming in their face a little bit to this like it's burning up a little bit to to, to think about you know a Michigan State team that was eleven and two last year that is now probably going to finish either six and six, five and seven maybe depending on how their schedule finishes out. That's brutal for handing a guy a contract of ninety five million dollars. It's pretty freaking terrible. And actually, I mean, you know, the game to look at is the game after Ohio State for Michigan State, actually, because then they they take on Wisconsin, and that will be – I honestly think that's going to be a game that defines the rest of the season for both teams. I mean, it, it, you'll see where they're at, I think, mentally and, and how that goes. By the way, uh, Michigan State against Ohio State in their last five meetings hasn't scored more than 12 points. Um, Ohio State uh, has averaged something like, I don't know, probably in like the, the mid to low 40s. So that's things have not gone super well for Sparty against Ohio State recently. I expect that to continue. Um, this is one of the you know, I, I figured that Shiana would be able to at least semi successfully shorten the game um, against Ohio State last week, and they, they kind of did. It was you know, they kept them under 50 and whatever. That's I guess that's a win, right? Um, for Rutgers, uh, but this game is one of those where I think uh, CJ Stroud will get his head on straight. Um, they'll they'll bomb on these dudes, and I don't know. I if I'm making a prediction, I'm putting a score out there. I'm going to say something like I don't know, maybe something around the lines of 52 to 12, which is what the the score was in 2020. So mm-hmm. let's. I'm not even going to be that generous. I'll say 52 to 10. How about that? That sounds great. I would probably be in the same ballpark. Um, maybe somewhere in the range of 59 to to 10, maybe something. I think Rutgers, Rutgers surprised Ohio State with that first touchdown only because yeah, right. Mecca Ibuka muffed mm-hmm. that punt. Um, I think I'll give a little bit more respect to Michigan State's offense that they'll put up that touchdown in a more traditional fashion. Right. But uh, outside of maybe a touchdown and a field goal, I, I just don't see where the offense is going to come from. Um, yeah. And so I'm in the same place as you. I'd probably say 52 to 10, 59 to 10, 66 to 10, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a lot of touchdowns <laughs> for Ohio State. It's going to be a so lot too. of touchdowns for Ohio State this Saturday. Yeah, and I hope, you know, I hope a lot of people, you know, heal up a little bit. And then maybe we see some of these guys uh, be able to make an impact. On the other hand, I would also really enjoy it if, if Chop goes out there and runs for, you know, 250 yards or something crazy. That would also be very entertaining for me. So, uh, hopefully all that comes to pass, but until then, uh, we'll see you next week. And I'm Johnny. And I'm Chase. And we'll see you next time.